Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week, my producer Miranda and I explore the top stories making waves in the news, and some that are just plain interesting. We connect you with the journalists and people who know the story, and bring you news without the noise, so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, we will be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. I think my favorite story of the week has to be this human composting story. Washington has become the first state in the country to legalize human composting. Before that, the only acceptable means of disposition of a human body was burial or cremation. And now we have this thing called natural organic reduction. The process involves wood chips. It takes about four weeks and it yields about two wheelbarrows worth of soil. Everything gets broken down, even the bones. Brendan Kiley, he's a reporter for the Seattle Times, spoke to us about this new alternative to burial or cremation. The first point is that alkaline hydrolysis and natural organic reduction are two separate processes. Alkaline hydrolysis, they've been trying to legalize that for the past few years in Washington state, and it's legal in some other states as well. But this year it got tacked on, or what got added was natural organic reduction, or colloquially known as human composting. And so this process, I think the easiest way to think about it is like a urban crematorium, except <laughs> using the slower composting decomposition process instead of the faster flame process. We do have green cemeteries in Washington state where people can be buried without embalming, without expensive caskets and so on. But this being one site where bodies would go in and the human remains would come out is totally new, the idea in the United States. Yeah. Specifically, how does this work? I've just seen wood chips, straw, and other materials. So what do they do to naturally decompose the body that way? The process dates back a little bit, a few years back, to something called livestock mortality composting, which is something farmers and ranchers began to experiment with and researchers as well, and found as an efficient and environmentally friendly means of decomposition of large animals, and found that one could, with the proper mix of of uh, starter elements, the right aeration, managing it for the right temperature could reduce 1,500 pound steer into totally clean, usable, nutritionally rich soil in about a few months. They ran some tests, a research program at Washington State University with human remains, people who were terminally ill and supported the project and wanted to donate their remains to the research and found that uh, using a similar process, human bodies could become that kind of clean, rich soil in about four weeks. Wow. Um, So the process of Yeah, it is pretty quick, and that's bones and all. It requires, again, the right starter elements, uh, the right aeration to keep the microbes happy. And it's, relatively speaking, uh, less odorous than people would think. If the microbes are really happy and working really efficiently, they do their work quickly, and they don't produce a lot of that off-gas odor that we associate with something rotting. Because that was one of my questions. What about the bones? Obviously, <laughs> they're, they're tough to break down. So I didn't know that even in that short of time, you know, four weeks, it's pretty quick. The bones yeah, go with it, too. Quick. Yeah, and again, it's a little different than just a green burial where you dig a hole and you lay someone in and just a, a cloth shroud or or something, you know, that process of decomposition takes longer because the conditions are different. But if you have the right temperature, the right moisture, the right starter elements, the process moves pretty fast. Now, traditional ways of disposing of the bodies, cremation usually burns two full SUV tanks worth of gas. They say that it emits 250,000 tons of carbon into the atmosphere each year. Traditional barriers, the body is pumped full of embalming fluid, 
obviously eating mm-hmm. caskets. All of these measures slowly decompose the body and it produces a lot of methane gas, things like that. The traditional ways environmentally are not necessarily the best. Was this bill introduced specifically to address some of those issues? It was. And that was one of the, the founder, Katrina Spade's main visions. I mean, she grew up in a farm in New Hampshire. Her father's hired physician. Her mother was a physician's assistant, an environmental activist. So familiarity with life, death, composting, new growth of plants and animals, and that was all part of her childhood coming up. And when she was studying architecture, she was thinking about death modalities, what we use to deal with human remains, and wondered if something more farm-like might be good, both environmentally and to people's taste. If people don't want to spend a lot of money on varnished caskets and lined with expensive cloths and the embalming process and all that kind of thing. So this is Katrina's vision and, and the state senators and the governor agreed. It was a simpler, less expensive, less complicated, more natural, more environmentally friendly option for people's remains after they pass away. Katrina Spade, so she's the developer of the Urban Death Project. Is she the one behind this Recompose company who's going to be building kind of these new burial plots for this? That's right. Katrina Spade started a nonprofit called the Urban Death Project, I think around 2014, and began the process of talking to scientists and attorneys and uh, death care experts from around the country, a lot lot on the West Coast, and formed a board, and they moved into a, a for-profit model, a small business model to have recompose. And now that the legislation has passed and the governor has signed it, the next step is for them to develop the rules uh, necessary with the Department of Licensing, all that kind of stuff, and find a site and start building. You know, when people get cremated, oftentimes they spread the ashes, maybe mm-hmm. in their loved one's favorite place. Loved ones are allowed to keep this soil that is made. You know, a body would create about two wheelbarrows full of soil and you can take it to a home garden wherever you want to put it. You know, to plant a tree, plant vegetables. So that's kind of a cool notion to breathe life out of somebody's passing as well. Oh, that's absolutely the case. And, and part of the attraction behind it, I mean, I spoke to one older gentleman who's a big supporter of this from Eastern Washington, has been a career nurse all his life, working in intensive cardiac care units. His vision is to have a memorial tree, you know, something that you could hang a swing on and maybe grandkids or great grandkids down the line could swing on and have his body come nourishment for that tree itself. It would be a living testament to him as opposed to to a headstone in a cemetery. Now, the next step is, I guess, to see if other states will propose similar bills and, and see how this takes off across the country. I mean, it sounds like there's some interest bubbling up, maybe a little bit in Massachusetts, a little bit in Michigan. Um, Joshua Slocum of the Funeral Consumers Alliance out in New England certainly knows about this and is following this. People are quite interested in this as a relatively simple, viable alternative to what we've done in the past. Brendan Kiley, reporter at the Seattle Times, thank you very much for joining us. Yes, thank you. One of the other top political stories of the week are the increased tensions in Iran. President Trump warned Iran not to threaten the U.S. again or it will face its quote-unquote official end. That happened shortly after a rocket landed near the U.S. embassy in Baghdad. Iran quickly responded with a hashtag saying never threaten an Iranian. The U.S. deployed bombers and an aircraft carrier to the area and Iran has increased its uranium enrichment production. We spoke to Nahal Tuzi, foreign affairs correspondent at Politico more on these rising tensions. There's this tense kind of back and forth right now between the Iranian leaders and President Trump on his Twitter feed. And it's very strange because President Trump recently has been trying to calm things down. He has said things like, I want Iran to call me. I just want to talk right. to them. He has 
flat out said he does not want to go to war with Iran. And yet he puts out this threat out there. And maybe it's because he was sitting there thinking, you know what, I need to be tough again. I can't seem like I'm coming across as too soft. But when you say something like, you know, this is going to be the official end of Iran, that's a pretty loaded statement. And it actually offends a lot of Iranians, uh, including like ordinary Iranians, that the Trump administration says that they want to support. Iran is a civilization that's been around for thousands of years. So saying that you're going to officially end it is, is quite the claim. And I think he might have undercut himself with a lot of ordinary Iranians. What started all of these tensions? Because we heard that there might have been some Americans that were being targeted. That's why the president sent over some bombers and some aircraft carriers to the area. But did all this stem from us being pulled out of the Iran nuclear deal. Yeah, I mean, the tensions have really been building up for months and months. The United States pulled out of the Iran nuclear deal, imposed a ton of new sanctions, damaging Iran's economy. And then recently, the United States, the Trump administration announced that it was going to declare a major piece of Iran's military as a terrorist group. Now, the Iranians, you know, they've kind of been still sticking with the nuclear deal. But recently, they said they're going to take steps to reduce their commitment to the deal. They also are pretty upset about the terrorist designation of one of their major military units. And so this has just been a, a situation where now they are apparently making moves that the U.S. feels are threatening, whereas there is also the argument that the U.S. is making moves that the Iranians feel are threatening. And so it's kind of becoming the question of like the chicken or the egg, like which came first, whose threat came first, and right. which one is going to lead to what. Iranian officials have said that they've quadrupled their uranium enrichment production. Their uranium that they have would not uh, would still be enriched only to that 3.67% limit that was set under the nuclear deal, but they could go beyond their stockpile limitations pretty soon. How does this figure into the whole discussion? What they're hoping to do is they've given the Europeans and other parties to the deal, like Russia and China, a couple of months to find ways to ease the economic suffering that they are facing right now as a result of U.S. sanctions. So they said, look, guys, you need to help us get out of this economic mess. Otherwise, we're going to start walking away from the deal and enriching uranium and doing these other things that puts them in violation of the deal. Because the way the Iranians look at it is, look, we signed up to this deal saying we would eliminate our nuclear program so that you guys would lift economic sanctions that were already on place earlier and so our economy would improve. And so they just feel like it's become a very one-sided deal. And I just don't see how the Europeans are going to be able to pull together anything that helps Iran's economy in the next 60 days. I just don't understand how that's going to happen because European governments cannot force their businesses to do business in Iran. And that's really what it's going to take to help their economy. If the Europeans do come to some sort of deal, some type of agreement, where does the U.S. stand on this? I've seen that they're still threatening to say sanction companies that import oil from Iran, things like that. So what is the U.S. going to do if they come up with some type of deal? The U.S. is taking a very much like a like a take no prisoners approach to this thing. The thing that's really interesting about the U.S. sanctions on Iran is that they target companies and governments elsewhere beyond Iran and beyond the U.S. that do business with Iran. So European companies, Chinese companies, etc., they are subject to U.S. sanctions, meaning they can't access the U.S. market if they try to do business in Iran. And if the Europeans were to find some way to get around it, I, I don't know how they're going to manage to do that, especially if they rely on the dollar as you know the exchange, the main currency. If, if they can do that, if they're going to try, I think the U.S. will have to impose sanctions on some of these European companies or, or firms, or Chinese or Russian, I should say. And if they don't, if the, if the Americans don't do that, then it kind of is like these other countries are calling the United States bluff on sanctions. But I think this administration very much is prepared to issue fines and cut 
cut off the U.S. market from some of these foreign companies just to send a message that they should not do business with Iran. How much of all this is bluster and how serious are these threats? There was a rocket that landed near the U.S. embassy in Baghdad. Uh, They said that nobody was harmed and it was kind of unclear who was behind the attacks. But that's what prompted the president to tweet out, if Iran wants to fight, that will be their official end. So where are we with this? I mean, you're asking the million dollar question. How much of this is just a bunch of talk and how much of it is serious willingness to take military action against people or organizations that the U.S. think threatens Americans? Because both sides said they don't want war. The president has said that and Iranian officials have said that as well. Well, yeah, but they each also say, but if the other side does something, (laughs) you know, we will respond with military force. So the question is, who's going to go first and who's going to try to de-escalate this the best. There are efforts. They're talking to other countries. People are trying to quietly mediate and bring people off the cliff a little bit. There were also reports that there were Iranian allied militia groups that denounced and said they had nothing to do with the rocket being fired. That might be a sign of them trying to calm down tensions. But yeah, I mean, look, you know, wars can start over any number of things. And this is one of those situations where it could be some low level guy like accidentally firing a gun. Yeah. And, you know, next thing you know, we could have another war. And I think that's what really, really worries a lot of people. The last question I have, do we have any official communications, back channel communications with Iran? Because the president has said, I want them to call me so we can negotiate something. Do we have that open line of communication? Well, the Swiss serve as our protecting power in Iran. So they've always been a channel for us to communicate with them. Officially, the Iranians do have an office with the United Nations. There's probably ways that we can get information to them. And also, it's quite possible, but I don't think they'll admit it, that the CIA probably has some sort of a a line to Iranian intelligence that they probably don't want to make public. And that's just my guess, but it's probably a pretty smart guess. You know, but to be honest, you so much of this is actually being done like in public on, on Twitter. Twitter. <laughs> yeah, it's like, why do you need a back channel? Right. Like, <laughs> That's one yeah. of the things that uh, continues to amaze me how a lot of this does play out there and which leads to a lot of misconceptions, a lot of misunderstandings because it is playing out on Twitter instead of these official lines. So we'll monitor this because uh, I know a lot of people are very concerned. Nahal Tuzi, foreign affairs correspondent at Politico. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Have a good day. We're going to touch a little bit on the big event that happened over the weekend, Game of Thrones, the finale. They set an all-time record for HBO, the ratings. They drew in 13.6 million viewers for the initial airing of the series finale. But you add in replays, you add in early streaming numbers, and that figure climbs to 19.3 million. They're records for Game of Thrones and for HBO also. I mean, it was a huge cultural event, almost. We're not going to talk about what happened in the show specifically. There was some more flubs. There was water bottles. People weren't happy with the way it ended. You know, there was petitions for rewrites for the season. (laughs) That's for fans of the show. The broader implications are really how TV has changed. Everybody's signaling that this could be the end of appointment TV. This is the last blockbuster TV show of our lifetime. That whole notion of water cooler talk. This is something that everybody watched and the next morning they were all talking about it at work. So let's start off with kind of a definition. What is appointment TV, Miranda? Appointment TV is just TV shows and programming that you schedule your life around. It doesn't have to be these big grandiose dramas like Game of Thrones. It can be things like, you know, Seinfeld and Friends. They've been saying that the death of appointment TV is going to happen since 1999 when TiVo first came around and it made it so easy to record your shows, fast forward the commercials or watch them later. 
So this isn't a new concept that whatever is going to happen next is the death of appointment TV. They said the same thing when Netflix started streaming TV shows right. and Amazon Prime and all that stuff started happening. Part of it is also that you do have to set your life around the shows and, and make the time to watch it. Part of it is now with the way we consume it and have social media and everything is the spoilers. Right. If you don't watch something like a Game of Thrones on the night of, by the next morning, it's hitting all the news. It's hitting your social streams. It's your friend text chains yeah. are talking about it. I know you, you know, had to put your phone away during Game of Thrones yeah, on Sunday night. I went to a screening like at a little tiny theater house. It was super cool, but we're in the West Coast. We had to see it at West Coast time at 9 p.m. So for three hours, I had oh, to no. put my phone away <laughs> so that we couldn't see any spoilers. But this is all kind of with factors in now to this appointment TV. Back in the day, there were no spoilers like that. And now if you're not watching it right when something is airing, something as big as like a Game of Thrones right. or a Breaking Bad, even when it was going, you run that risk of spoiling everything. And that's what they're saying is significant about Game of Thrones. It launched the same year as Twitter. So people have grown up with this show in an era where live tweeting is common. So you don't necessarily have to do a big watch party with your friends and your family or whatever. You can live watch it with thousands of fans on Twitter and have in time discussions about what's happening. What did you just see? Oh, did you notice that? That kind of stuff. Yeah. So analysts are saying that it's possible that Game of Thrones, if it were to premiere today, wouldn't have the same cultural impact that it had because of just the timing of it was really lightning in a bottle. Yeah. I mean, do I think it is the end of Appointment TV now that Game of Thrones is gone? No. I think there will be some other show that will capture the cultural, big cultural interests of a lot of people and right. people will want to watch it together and get those watch parties going. But the way we consume stuff is different now. You know, as a Netflix or a Hulu, these streaming services, they release seasons as a whole. It's right. the whole 10 episodes. So you don't get that incremental weekly buildup, that well, no, excitement. But then you have the two weeks where everyone's talking about and then it's Stranger over. Things or Dead to Me. And then it's done. I was in the hair salon on Friday covering my ears because people were talking about that Dead to Me show and I haven't seen it yet. That's part of this appointment TV thing. It's changing things. Whereas a week to week incrementalism, you'll watch a show on the streamers. It's a flash in the pan almost. And you never know when someone else is watching it. Think of the conversations you have. Did you see that Game of Thrones episode last night versus have you seen Dead to Me? Or where are or, you in Dead to or Me? Or where are you? you what know, just you, happened? You never know. You're not watching it in tandem with people a lot of times or you're just recapping a whole season of something to somebody. The streamers are probably going to have to adjust what they do. There's no reason why Netflix can't drop an episode of Stranger Things over the course of 12 weeks as opposed to one big, you know, it takes you a whole weekend to watch, but you're done with it. And then it's out of your mind for another three years. People just watch stuff differently. Think about also you go home and sometimes you're just not in the mood to pick up a new show mm -hmm. or to watch something that's going to be involved with a lot of story elements like a Game of Thrones. You just want to watch something silly and something that, you know, that's why we go back to it all the time. That's why The Office is the number one streamer for Netflix. It's going to be interesting to see what that next big show will be. I think there will be one. Yeah, it might take a few years before it happens. But for now, a lot of people are kind of sad that this is done and they, you you lose that camaraderie with following along with these shows with people. When you think about the end of Game of Thrones, though, it's not over. There are at least, what is it, eight other Westeros themed shows <laughs> in the pipeline. So oh, just they're just, trying to your time. they're just trying to capitalize on whatever popularity they can at that <laughs> point. Thanks, Miranda. Thanks, Oscar. All right. That's it for us this weekend. Be sure to check out The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, 
give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive Weekend Edition.